Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. Good to be back inside. For those of you watching online, probably not much has changed, so hi. Um, this morning, I wanted to, oh, we're going to be going to a new series on Jonah, um, but just thinking about the words of the psalmist, in Psalm 25, it writes, Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. This morning, we're going to be starting a new series on the book of Jonah. And kind of as I've been preparing and reading through the last several weeks on this book, one of the things that jumped out to me about Jonah is that this is really a story of God's mercy. So this psalmist who's calling us to ask the Lord to show us the ways and, and to teach us God's paths and to, to guide us and teach us in truth. And then I love that ending line, remember, Lord, your great mercy and love for they are from old. And that's really the summary of the story of Jonah. Now, what's tricky for some of us is that, you know, for those of us who grew up in church, We've heard this story before. Um, for those of us who, you know, actually read our Bibles and, and go through Scripture, this is a story that we're very, very familiar with. It's even a story that, you know, it's, 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 it's very fond in our memories. You know, for me, when I think of Jonah, I think of VBS as a kid, right? I think of, you know, grandparents and Sunday school teachers telling me this story about the big, big, the big fish, right? Jonah and the big fish. But what's interesting about this book of Jonah, though, is that a lot of us, right, get a very sanitized version of this book. And the sanitized version basically goes like this, like, yeah, God kind of called Jonah to do stuff. He didn't really do it, but then he did it, and everyone's saved. But when you go back and you read through the book of Jonah, you realize that, you know, upon second look, it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? Uh, and one of the things I said in our video blog that went out this week was that, you know, I, I got a chance a couple months ago to, to go back home to Philly and to revisit the block where I grew up on. And, and upon first look, this was the, the biggest block, right? My house is the biggest house, all that stuff. But when you go back you know, for this second look, I realized that, like, well, it's Philadelphia, right? So it's a one-way street, but we park on both sides, you know? Like, it's just like, that's what we do. And I remember sitting there looking at my street, and I was like, how in the world did our parents let us play football out here in baseball? Like, this is not safe, you know? Um, and then I looked at the house I grew up in, and it was fascinating because, you know, one of the things that was a, a blessing in our house is that we'd have family come from Liberia or come from other parts of Africa. They stayed with us for a little bit. And I looked at this house, which in my head was so big, and I was like, how do we make it here with one bathroom? Like, this is wild, right? So upon second look, we see things that maybe a little bit more differently, but I would argue sometimes we see it even more clearly. And when we do the second look at Jonah, we realize that, yeah, it might be fond and friendly memories, but, but the unsanitized view of Jonah shows that it's a little bit complicated, right? We meet Jonah, we, we kind of see him as a prophet, a man of God, but then when you look at him the second time, you're like, well, Jonah might be a little mean, you know, a little nasty. You know, when, when you look at Jonah, you realize that, you know, what we're seeing here isn't necessarily what we like. And if you look even more deeper at Jonah, you start to recognize, like, oh my goodness, what is being said here? Because if this is a person of God, and they look like this, oh my goodness, what is being said about us who are supposed to be following God? Is this how the world sees us? Is this how God sees us? Is Jonah not just a reflection of this story we learned in Sunday school, but is it a reflection of us? Now, to give you a little bit of, you know, breathing code, like when you go to Old Testament, there's a little cheat code I want to give you in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament too, but especially in the Old Testament. Whatever you read in the Old Testament, this is the cheat code. You ready for this? God is the hero of the story, right? If you start there, everything else makes sense. Like, if you try to make David and Goliath about David, you get lost, right? If you try to make Jonah about Jonah, you get lost. But God is the hero of the story. And if you hold on to the fact that God is the hero of the story, even when you go back to this complicated new look of Jonah, what you'll find is that this story of Jonah is really the story of God's mercy and love. 
So this morning we'll be reading in Jonah chapter 1, the very first 16 verses. And, and as we read and as we go through this story, you'll find that it's a story about calling. It's a story about running uh, from God. It's a story about sleeping and deep sleep. But it's also a story about fear. And what does that look like? It's a story about storms. But I think what I want us to kind of hold on to is that this is actually not just a story about Jonah and the Ninevites, but it's a story about obedience. George MacDonald, who is um, probably one of the greatest writers that most people don't know, but he's inspired just about every good writer, right? And if he didn't inspire that good writer, he inspired someone who would hold some of those good writers as their heroes, right? George MacDonald inspired people like uh, Mark Twain and, and Madeline Lengel, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, Lewis Carroll, who, who wrote Alice in Wonderland, when he first wrote Alice in Wonderland, he actually gave it to McDonald's kids to read to his girls. Now, I have two girls, and I've read Alice in Wonderland. I don't know how that happened. Like, I don't think I would look at my daughters and be like, here's a good nighttime story. You know, that's just me, right? That's just me. But, 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 but McDonald wasn't just this poet and author. He was also this deeply spiritual man and this minister. And I love this quote. And as we go through this first chapter of Jonah, I want you to kind of hold that in your mind, right? And if you have a pen, maybe even write it down and come back to it this week, because I think this is a beautiful quote that sums up what we're dealing with about this idea of obedience and following God. And McDonald just is a very plain quote. He says this, I find that doing the will of God leaves me no time for disputing about his plans. I find that doing the will of God leaves me no time for disputing about his plans. I want you to hold that in the framework of your mind, right? As we now go to Jonah chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because his wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, for they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you so much that we have you. We thank you for the chance to gather today. We thank you for the chance to learn from you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence already in the room. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as you we follow, as you we call our Lord and Savior, and we pray now that our lives may show that you are indeed our Lord and Savior. 
So Father, we pray that you show us your ways. Lord Jesus, we pray that you teach us your paths. And Holy Spirit, we teach you, we pray that you ask us and you lead us and you guide us so that we can obey. That you transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That you transform us into who God desires us to be. That you use us to go into this world not as disobedient sisters and daughters or, or sons and daughters, not as disobedient people, but as people who reflect you. And God, we thank you that your love and mercy is afforded to us. But we pray now that you help us know that in obedience, in going to our world, in listening and, and in following you, your love and mercy would be available and made available through us to our world as well. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. One of the things that's beautiful about the book of Jonah is that it's very different from some of the other prophets. A lot of the prophets, as you read them, they're sermons. You know, they're either a compiled list of sermons, you know, which I think is a little bit terrifying. Like sometimes I listen to myself on the internet, I'm like, ooh, what's going on there, you know? But like they're compiled lists of sermons that like last thousands of years, right? Which is terrifying to me, but it's scripture, you know? But the other thing about Jonah that's very different, though, is that this isn't a compiled list of sermons. This isn't even like God gave him a great prophecy, and then he goes out and writes out the prophecy. What Jonah is, is a story that actually happens to Jonah. And that makes it a little bit complicated because when we come to Jonah, we realize that it's not just words of the prophet or words from the Lord, but it's a story. And this story is a little bit different. In fact, a lot of people who study English and study language, when they read the story of Jonah, they understand it as satire, right? They understand it as like there's a lot of different meanings going on, what's happening. You know, there's just things aren't as they should be, and there's a lot of stuff that represents stuff. And, and, and so for some of us, we're just like, okay, English majors, like, I get it, satire, right? Now, for others of us who maybe are fans of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, right, they need to understand or they help, it's helpful to understand that Jonah is really a myth, right? Now, hold that for a second, because some of you are like, myth, that means it's false. No, 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 no. The original idea of myth was, again, I'm going to tell you a story that's going to have a lot of characters that aren't familiar to you. It's going to have a lot of representation, but it's going to point you towards the truth. I'm going to tell you a story with a lot of things that you maybe understand that's going to have a deeper meaning, a deeper truth, right? Now, for those of you who don't like that, you'll just settle on this one. It's a parable, right? What's a parable? It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, meaning that in the story of Jonah, it's not just what happens to him, but in the story, you will see things that just aren't as they should be. You will see God trying to push through this great truth for us to understand, and you will see a lot of things that just doesn't ordinarily make sense. And that's before we even get to the big fish, right? So what you have in this story, for example, is that, you know, Nineveh is the center of the story, not Jerusalem. Think about that for a second. This is God's people, and what Jonah is sent is not to go to the city of God, the city of David, not to go where they believe that the God dwelled, right? But to go to Nineveh. Where was Nineveh? Nineveh was in Assyria. Who were the Assyrians? They were rivals who were an ascending world power, who were enemies of, e of, of ancient Israel, right? So God doesn't even center the story on Jerusalem, but Nineveh. Also, you have a prophet. Now, what do you call these prophets? There were men and women who followed God, right? There were men and women who God gave a vision, and they obeyed. But here in the story of Jonah, we have a prophet who what? Disobeys God and does it consistently, right? You'll see it in, in chapter 1, but you also see it in 2, 3, and 4 in different ways, right? But you have a prophet who's supposed to be following God who consistently disobeys God. Another thing that's interesting is the Old Testament is very, very clear, and even Jesus is very, very clear that he comes through the God's chosen people, the Hebrews, but he's for the world. But the focus in the Old Testament is like, how do we redeem Israel? How does Israel be a light for all the nations? How does Israel point to the world? Well, the focus of Jonah is not Israel, but Gentiles, but the world. 
A lot of people will ask Christians and say, like, how do we know God cares about the world? I say, read Jonah. How do we know that God's working in spite of your purview? I say, read Jonah. How do we know that God is greater than what we see and understand? Read Jonah. Because here's a story where God shows not only does God know what's happening in the world, but God's working to redeem the world. And God's actually trying to raise up his people to go and to work through them to show the world what? His love and his mercy. So in Jonah, you have this focus on the world, right, and the pagans. But what's interesting, it is not God's people or God's prophet who's humble. It's the pagans. It's the Gentiles. It's not Jonah who's repentant. It's the pagans. It's the Gentiles. It's not even the, 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 the people, the God's people who are, are obedient, right? Jonah's stubborn. He's mean. He's nasty. The opposite are the pagans, the Gentiles, the world out there. But who is this prophet Jonah? We believe that Jonah was an 8th century Israelite prophet. He actually shows up during the time of Jeroboam II. I know you guys all have that in your Bible trivia page, right? That's when he shows up on the scene. But what's interesting about Jonah, and what I think actually helps us understand this book and the totality of this book, is to figure out where he shows up. And when he shows up, he shows up in 2 Kings 14, like I said, during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now what's interesting is Jeroboam II is characterized as an evil king as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, if the Bible says you're beautiful, in my mind, you're very, very beautiful. I like David, Bathsheba, they're like special. Like the rest of us are like normal beautiful. They're like very, very beautiful, right? But the flip side of that is the Bible says you're evil. Like you're very, very evil, right? And so this evil king who's in Israel and ruling at the time is who Jonah is, is actually coming up around that time. So usually, you know the story, right? When there's an evil king and there's a prophet, what does the prophet do? They say, you're evil. You're not doing God's will. Why are you pulling people away from God? But guess what Jonah does to Jeroboam? He goes before Jeroboam and he actually prophesies in Jeroboam's favor. He looks at Jeroboam and he says, listen, God has told me there's a battle coming and you're going to win and you're going to regain all our land that we lost in northern Israel. You're going to do everything. Because Jonah was a prophet who loved peace, who loved comfort, who loved stability, and who loved Israel. And so instead of just doing God's work, he wanted his peace, his comfort, his stability. He wanted his God not to be about the world, but about Israel. So when he has a prophet, that's what he wants to do. He's like, listen, Jeroboam, we're going to ignore that you're evil and you're terrible, but God's going to bless you. And that's where Jonah starts. Now, why this gets tricky is because a contemporary of Jonah was a prophet by the name of Amos. Amos is the exact opposite. He wasn't born into a prophetic family. He didn't even have this as a job. In fact, we think, you know how I said there's a compiled list of sermons? We think Amos went on a mission trip. Like, he went on a mission trip, dropped his, you know, dropped the mic, and then left. Like, he went back to shepherding, right? Like, that's what he did. But the interesting thing about Amos is he hears about Jonah's prophecy, and he looks around Israel, and he says, wow, look at us. We like our peace. We like our comfort. We like our stability. We like that we're, we're doing good. We like that we're different from the rest of the world. In fact, we even like the fact that the rest of the world doesn't really touch us. We ignore the fact that we live in a country that's built on the backs of the poor. We ignore the fact that we live in a country where, you know, the least of these are who get left behind. We forget the fact that we live in a country that was built on slavery. We forget the fact that the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. We forget the fact that we are too comfortable. Now, you may think he's talking about America, but he's not. He's actually talking about Israel. But if you think it's talking about America, maybe that'll wake you up, right? But Jonah... Jonah likes the comfort of Israel. 
And Amos looks at it and Amos says, you know what? When I see you living in a country that makes it back off the poor, when I see you living in a country where the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer, when I see you working for systems that keep separating people, when I see you putting yourself first and your comfort and your stability, God's justice is against you. So Amos, the mission strip guy, shows up and says, Jonah, I get what you said and God's going to bless and all that, right? But there's a day coming where if you don't stand on the side of the oppressed, where if you don't stand on the side of the poor, where if you don't fight for the least of these, God's justice is against you. And what's fascinating to me is that Amos makes this prophecy. And when he makes this prophecy, he goes before Jeroboam, and Jeroboam had his own special priest, which is interesting to think about. It seems, the Bible seems to have this wild idea that faith and politics shouldn't mix, right? And I'm not saying that your faith shouldn't inform your politics, but like your faith should not submit to your politics. It's a weird idea, I know. Like, like the Bible seems to think that like you should make Jesus Lord, right? And not like your political party or, or whatever leader you like. And the Bible's just wild. It's wild, right? Like you should actually, when Jesus says love your enemies, you should be like, wow, I need to love people, right? The Bible has wild ideas. I know, it's just wild, right? But when they mix politics, and they, they, because the thing is, when you mix politics with faith, politics always wins, right? And so what had happened is Jeroboam didn't want people going to Jerusalem, so he actually built them a calf. So they would worship a golden calf. And he set up his own prophet. And this prophet goes to Jonah and be like, Jonah, I like your prophecy, but Amos, why are you causing trouble? But the thing about causing trouble is that Amos just simply obeyed God. So while Amos is this obedient servant, Jonah is not. And furthermore, Amos makes this obedient work and he speaks up about how God's justice against them. And it doesn't even happen or come in God in his lifetime, right? Because at this time, Israel knows relative peace with Assyria. Assyria was an enemy, yes, but in that time they weren't fighting, they had relative peace, everything was cool. Yet Amos trusted what God called him to do, and he did it. And I think that's a core component of understanding this book of Jonah. Are we willing to trust what God has called us to do, and are we willing to do it, even if we don't see the fruit in our lifetime? Amos didn't live 100 years more or 200 years more to see his prophecies come true but he was obedient and followed God's word. So Jonah shows up. And in this story, it starts off regular like every other, you know, command, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because his wickedness has come before me. Nothing new in that passage, right? God has a prophet. God has a work to do for the prophet. And God calls the prophet to actually go and do something. That is all very normal. God makes this command that Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh. When we ask, does God know what the world, what's happening in the world, and does God see the suffering of the world, read the book of Jonah. God literally says, I have seen their wickedness, and it's come up before me. And I think it's interesting that when God sees the wickedness of the world, God doesn't fret like we fret. God doesn't fear like we fear. God doesn't complain like we complain. God actually says, my people, I need you to go there. I think we got to sit with that for a second because it's so easy for us to say the world is dark. The world is not as it should be. Everything's messed up. And God's answer is always like, well, I need you to go. Because if it's dark, you're the light. If it's broken, you can fix it. If you're scared, trust in me because I've overcome the world. So God looks at the darkness of Nineveh and his solution is to send his people. So maybe that should maybe reorder our thinking when we see darkness in this world. Because just maybe our God is saying, when you see that darkness, I need you to go and be the light. 
So the prophecy or the call for Jonah is very, very normal that God will call his people to go into that darkness and to preach the gospel or to, to, to reveal who God is. But Jonah's disobedience is so intentional and it's so ugly and it's so us, right? Because what happens is this trip from, from where he was in Israel to go to Nineveh was actually a long trip over land. But Jonah's going to do everything opposite, right? So it's supposed to be a long trip over land. Jonah's going to go not by land, but overseas, right? And for those of you English major, you'll like that because it's a double entendre there. Overseas, you know, like he, he got it from land to the sea. But then he also went to another country, so overseas. You'll get it later. But that's what he does, right? It's a long land trip, but he chooses to go overseas. Furthermore, God calls Jonah to go east to Nineveh. He chooses to go west, as far opposite as he could. In fact, uh, a lot of theologians and, and scholars debate on where he was going, where this Tarshish was. Some people believe it's in Spain. Some people believe it's in Carthage in Africa. No one really knows. But all we know is that he was supposed to go east, and he went as far west as he could go. All we know is that it was supposed to be a long trip over land, right? And he was literally supposed to go over land, so he chose to go over sea. All we know is that he was supposed to go up, and he chose to go down. But what's interesting here is, we don't know why Jonah chooses to run. Now, we can say that the, the Assyrian Empire was ascending. We can say that, you know, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was Israel's bitter enemy. We can say that they were rivals. What I think is fascinating, at least to me, is that Assyria eventually takes over Israel. Assyria, this name Ninevites, they, they eventually will conquer and enslave Israel. And so what's interesting to me then is like if that happens already or if that's going to happen in the future, why would God send Jonah now? Now we can say, well, he wants to save people. That's what God is. But I think there's a deeper meaning. And I think the deeper meaning is simply this. When God sends us into the world, when God sends us into the darkness, God counts you as a preventative measure to destruction. When Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, it doesn't just mean you sprinkle like salt bay, right? It doesn't mean you just sprinkle it and you, you, you give it a little taste, right? But what is salt? Salt is a preventative as well to keep it from decaying. And I think God knows destruction is coming unless his people are willing to be obedient and to stop that destruction. God knows that darkness breeds more darkness unless you have light. God knows that brokenness or, or hurt people hurt people unless we're willing to love people. And I think why God sends him to Nineveh is because he knows this ascending world power, this ascending uh, glory hounds, this, this military might, you can call it America, but I'm going to call it Syria. He knows that they don't represent who God is, and he wants his people to shine there. So he sends Jonah to Assyria, and he sends him to Nineveh, and Jonah chooses to run. Is he afraid? Does he just not like the Ninevites, you know? We don't know yet. But what we know for sure is that he runs from God. The God says go, and he goes the opposite. God says go up, he goes down to Joppa. And when he gets to Joppa, he pays the fare. The word for fare in the Hebrew, it connotates a, a, a big spend, right? Like it's not just like he pays his way on. There's a connotation here that he either bought his own boat, or he paid for the entire crew, or at the very least, he got VIP status, right? Which you kind of see in the story that when there's a whole storm going on, he's allowed to sleep, right? So he pays enough money. And I think it's interesting that God says, go this way, he goes this way. God says, go this way, he goes this way. God says, go here, he goes there, right? And not only does he go there, but he's willing to pay his own money to be comfortable, which is a challenge for us. 
we're willing, or what are we willing to do to be comfortable? What are we willing to do to be safe? What are we willing to do to not listen to the call that God puts in our lives? What are we willing to do to think about me and mine instead of the world that God sends us to? But Jonah goes down to Joppa, he pays his fare, and I think this is beautiful. God called Jonah. When we were talking about Paul going through the book of Acts, we said Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And I love that Paul took that mission, right? He took it like, this is what God called me to do. I'm going to go do it. God calls Jonah to be a prophet to the Gentiles. Jonah says no. Jonah flees. Jonah runs away. But guess what happens the first time we hear Jonah speak? He's being a prophet to the Gentiles. And there's this fascinating thing going on here where I think God wants to work through all of us but we can disobey. We cannot listen. And here's the thing. Even when we disobey and don't listen, God can work in spite of you. But I think the difference is God doesn't want that. God wants to work through you, not in spite of you. God says, Jonah, I need you to be a prophet to the Gentiles. Jonah says, no. God's like, well, you're still going to be a prophet to the Gentiles. <laughs> right? And that's what happens. But we're going to get to that later. So what happens is he boards the ship. And as he boards the ship, he's on board with a bunch of Gentiles who he's supposed to go speak to, but he's running away from God. And so God sends a wind, and a great wind blows up, and, and there's a storm coming. And what's interesting here is that the sailors start crying out to their gods. And you have to make a word about this, because these sailors had a different relationship with faith and religion. For them, when they cry out to their gods, this wasn't a personal god. This wasn't a god they knew. This was a god they looked around and was like, somebody's angry, you know? Their relationship with their God is, how do I disappease this mad person up there? How do I do anything to just get through the day, right? This wasn't a relationship about love and mercy and forgiveness. They were just trying to figure out who did we anger? You know, who did we pay enough money to? What's going on here? So they start crying out to all their gods, right? And nothing's happening. And what happens in the ship, if you start to go down, you start throwing stuff overboard. So that's what they do. They throw over cargo, throw over cargo, throw over cargo. And finally, the captain of the ship is searching around, and they're probably in the belly of the fish. Or, sorry, that's next week. They're probably in the belly of the ship, right? And so he goes down to the belly to get everything out. And what does he see but Jonah sleeping? We lose this in the English, right? But in the Hebrew, it actually says something like this, sleeper, why are you sleeping? I pause for that for a second. Because I think there's, a, there's, a, there's something very important for us to pull out of that. Because I believe that in our world out there, the storms are brewing. That people are struggling, that people are crying out, that people are trying everything they might to try to save themselves. I believe that in the world that we live in, there's so many storms all around these people, and they're looking for everywhere for help. But I also believe that we as Christians are too comfortable, that we've paid the price, or excuse me, Jesus has paid the price, so now we get to sleep. I believe that while the world is in a storm out there, we're building our silos down here. We're getting our, our, our comfortable mattresses, and we're sleeping. And I believe that the word of the captain needs to go to us today. Sleeper, why are you sleeping? If the world is on fire, why are you sleeping? If the world is in storms, why are you sleeping? If people need God, why are you sleeping? Why is your comfort, why is your peace? Why are you more important than the world around you? Sleeper, why are you sleeping? And I love that when he says this to Jonah, He's not even believing in Jonah's God. 
You have to understand that if there was about 50 people on the, on, the, on the top of the boat, right, praying out to their gods, this wasn't a religious thing. This was a purely practical thing, right? So the captain's looking at it, he's counting up his men. He's like, okay, there's 50 of us. There's 50 gods we're crying to. No one's listening. Dude, you're number 51. <laughs> you know, like, you're next man up. Like, you need to go pray to your God and figure it out because why are you sleeping? Wake up! So Jonah wakes up. And as he goes up, the, 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 the interesting thing too for me is like the sailors, even though they don't have a personal relationship with God, they know when God is working. They know when God is winning. They know when God is working. They know when God is moving. And I think, I think even those people who don't believe, not only are they made in the image of God, but God is still alive and working in their lives. When people say, I know that there's more than there is than I, in this world, right? I know the world is more than it should be, or I know there's more meaning to this life, or I know there's just got to be more, 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 more. I just don't know how to connect the dots. Guess who God chooses to help them connect the dots? It's you. And people say, you know, I know the world's not as it should be. Guess who God chooses to tell them the story about how the world is should be? It's you. And people say, I know there's more meaning to this life. I know there's more, but I just don't know how to connect that dots. Guess who God chooses to connect the dots for them? It's you. And I wish that Jonah made this recognition, right? But instead, they wake him up. And he goes up on the, 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 the board of the ship. And from the top, they're still praying. They're still casting out. They're like, come on, number 51, you need to pray too. And there's no indication that Jonah prays, right? So eventually, they cast lots. Now, for, for some of us, this is a very strange and foreign concept, but what I think is even more interesting than them casting lots is they're not doing this because they're trying to find a guilty party. They're just doing this because they're trying to figure out what's going on. From their framework and mindset was when you upset a god, a storm comes. So we need to know which god is upset. You know, so for example, a couple weeks ago, I think it was a couple months ago, there was a bunch of rain, right? And our church, you know, because we're very cool like that, we had a bunch of flooding in the sanctuary here, and there was about six or seven of us with shop bags going back and forth. None of us were asking, like, where's the water coming from, right? Like, the entire focus was what? To get the water out of the sanctuary. That's where these people were coming from. Like, they didn't care about who your god was or how powerful it was. It was just like, our boat's about to flood, literally. Our boat is about to break. We're about to drown. Which God is angry? Jonah, we think it's you. What do you have to say? And so Jonah finally, finally, after he's almost caught, right? He's sleeping during the storm. He's not praying or calling out to God. He's not even caring about the people. And finally they cast lots and they're just like, um, yeah, it's you. <laughs> you, what do you got to say? I think it's interesting how Jonah answers because he tells them this. He says, I am a Hebrew. He identifies not just who he was ethnically, but he identifies himself as God's chosen people. That's, not, that's like me saying I'm a Christian, right? And now it might mean different things to different people, but when I say I'm a Christian, I'm identifying as someone who follows Jesus Christ, right? So he identifies as a Hebrew, but even more important than that, in a culture that had all these different gods, he says, and I worship and follow Yahweh uses the personal name of God. So in a religion, in a place, in a culture that doesn't have personal gods, he uses the personal name of God. So he, he looks at these people who are looking for answers. He says, I worship the God of this universe. I worship the God of all history. I worship the God of the past, the present, the future. I worship the God who made the heavens. I worship the God who made all the lands and all the seas. And at some point as a little kid, I want to be like Jonah. 
if you worship the God who made the seas, see where I'm going with this? You know, if you worship the God who made the seas, can you really run from him on the sea? So Jonah is able to make this confession about who God is. He's not even doing it to save the people. He's simply doing it to say, I worship the God of all things. That's the God I worship. And what's interesting is the people's response is terror. And I want you to understand, they're not terrified of God, even though they're in the middle of a storm that God sent. You know what they're terrified of? They're terrified of the man of God. I think we got to sit with that. Because as messed up as our world might seem, People aren't terrified of a God who might be in control. They might like that, actually. People aren't terrified by a God who's actually working and moving. They might like that, actually. People are terrified by we as Christians who keep falling short, who keep failing our God, and who keep failing them. And the reason they're terrified is because they knew when Jonah came aboard the ship, what did he tell them? He told them that he was running away from the Lord. He told them that he was running away from the Lord. So they say, wait. Your God is the God of all history? <laughs> the past, present, and the future? Your God is literally the one you know personally? He made the heavens, the land, and the sea, and you're running from him? What have you done? Because they already knew that Jonah was running. And then something fascinating happens here. Jonah steps up finally, right? He's just like, you know what? What can you do? Throw me aboard, right? Throw me overboard, the storm will come. And then when you first read this, right, you want to say, like, this is brave, right? You want to say at first glance, look at Jonah being brave, right? There's a whole storm, and he just wants to be thrown out there. But that's just the first glance. Because upon second glance, you'll say, like, well, if your God's the God of the seas, you can pray to him and ask him to intervene. At second glance, you'll say, if your God's the God of the universe, the God of Hebrews and, and, and Gentiles, you can pray and say, God, please come help us. Uh, upon second glance, you'll realize that, like, I can call out to God, like these 50 people have been trying to call out and failing, I can call out to God to intervene. But Jonah's not willing to intervene. And here's the sad thing about Jonah's disobedience. Jonah would rather die than let God reach the world. Jonah is not being brave. He would rather be thrown into the sea than to actually obey the word of God. Now, I'm going to give us the benefit of doubt. I don't think any of us are at that place, right? I don't think any of us are at a place where we would rather die than to be obedient to God, right? Clap yourself on the back. That's a good thing. But I think the question we all have to ask is, we may not be willing to die to not tell God's story to the world, but why? Why? Why are we willing to let our world die? Because we're keeping our mouths shut. Why are we willing to let people keep suffering because we're not willing to share the story of God? Why are we willing to let the world be not as it should be because we're not being obedient to the God and who God calls us to be? Jonah is so disobedient that he would rather die than love his enemies. He would rather die than be obedient to God. And I think, I think the question to all of us becomes, why? Are we so self-focused? Why are we so about me and mine? Why do we see the darkness? Do we see the brokenness? Do we see the struggles? Do we see the storms? And we are okay with our world dying 
instead of telling them who our God is. And I think it's fascinating that, again, these pagans, these Gentiles, these sailors, they're the ones who are obedient. And even when Jonah tries to be brave, right? He says, throw me overboard, right? They're not willing to do it. And it says something about the world that we live in, right? A lot of us as Christians, we think that we're the good ones or the bad ones. Everything's binary, right? Good, bad, right? But it's fascinating to me that the man of God would rather die than save them. And these people would rather do anything but let him die. And so even though they know that's the solution, they try with all their might to row, 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 and they get nowhere. And when they finally realize that they have to do this thing, right, this is what they say. This isn't people, like, when I read this as a kid, I was like, oh, cool. You know, Jonas has thrown me overboard. They're like, wee, you know, I just tossed them, right? But I want you to actually think about it anew, right? Or maybe you already did this, but I needed to do this. It's almost like, you know, in the movies when the music kicks in, it's like, now we will get serious, you know? Like, with a little bit more feeling, right? Like, like the music kicks in, you're like, now this is an important scene, right? I want you to picture that because I think this is what happens here. Because they row with all their might and they fall short. And you can see all of them turning and looking to Jonah. And they regretfully, they hesitantly have to do this thing. And I want you to realize how hard it was for them. This is the pagans. This is the Gentiles. These are the people who don't know God, but they're able to recognize God. Even though Jonah isn't being a man of God and a prophet, they're able to recognize the, the sanctity of Jonah's life. And they're able to recognize that this was a man of God. And they don't want to throw him overboard. And this is what they says. It says, they cried out to Yahweh. The Lord, the God of all history, the God of the universe, the God of the land and the sea, the God of the past, the present and the future. They cried out to the Lord. They said, please, Yahweh, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Yahweh, have done as you pleased. They regretfully, regretfully throw Jonah overboard. And they're repenting even as they throw him over. And you get this beautiful thing in the book of Jonah, where it's not God's people who are being faithful, but it's the world. And maybe I love this story because I'm a Gentile, I'm not a Jew. But I love the idea that instead of me worrying about what God's doing in the world and can God save everyone, I can trust that God is saving people and God is working through people and people are learning who God is because as they throw him overboard, they not only repent, they turn to God. They took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared Yahweh, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. We live in a world where the storms are all around us. We live in a world where people are looking for every kind of answer. We live in a world where God needs us to connect the dots. But you can take hope. You can find peace that God's working, not only through us, but sometimes even in spite of us. And I love that this story ends. You know, some commentators say like, you know, when I read this story, you know, maybe these ship people, like they didn't really turn to God. They didn't forsake their other gods. You know, maybe they just like praise God for the moment. And I'm like, I think you missed the point. Because the whole book of Jonah is how God loves the world. The whole book of Jonah is how all the world belongs to God. The whole book of Jonah is every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, everybody matters. The whole book of Jonah is, I know you think I'm about Israel, but I'm about the world. And these people worship God. But I think there's lessons for us in this first chapter of Jonah. And there's four things I want you to hold on to. The big point is simply this. We're called to obey because all of us are part of God's work for the world. 
That's why we're called to obey, because not only does everybody matter, everybody is part of God's work to the world. How do we know that, or how do we keep doing that? How do we keep being obedient and faithful? Four ways. The first one is simply this. When God tells you to go, go. When God tells you to go, go. Now, for some people, this might mean God has some burden on your heart, and he's opened doors, and he's pushing you through. He says, my daughter, this is what I want you to be doing. My son, this is what I want you to be doing. For some of you, it might be that. But here's something that's interesting. When Matthew sums up Jesus' great commission, Jesus is sending into the world. Another way the English betrays us, right? Because in that we read, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've taught you, right? That's what we read in English, go. But you know what it says in the Greek? If you understand the tenses and all that, it says, having already been sent. Jesus isn't telling you to go. <laughs> Jesus expects you to already have gone. Jesus isn't saying, hey, go and make disciples. Jesus is saying, I've already sent you. Are you making disciples? And that changes things because when God says go, have you gone? Have you gone? Because you've already been sent. And if you've already been sent, are you making disciples? Because here's the truth. We're either making disciples of Jesus or making disciples of ourselves. Choose this day who you will serve. When Jesus says go, we must go. And part of that going, we must all know that God has already sent us out into the world. Are you baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit? Are you teaching your world everything that God has taught you? Are you shining your light in the darkness? Are you complaining about the world not being as it should be? Or are you actually working to make it better? Are you complaining about all the injustices you face because you're an American Christian? Are you recognizing that there's Christians in the world who to say the name of Jesus Christ means certain death? Right? For some of us, it's a bad Facebook post that upsets our day. For other people, just saying the name of Jesus means they might die. Jesus has already sent you. What are you doing now that you've been sent? The Great Commission isn't go and make disciples. It's have been already been sent. Are you making disciples in the name of Jesus Christ? The second thing I want us to hold on to is that you can't outrun God. You can't. And we see this in Jonah. The man's able to say, God's the God of all the seas, and then tries to hide out on the sea. In Psalm 139, David it does this beautiful psalm, right? This beautiful line, God, you know my thoughts before they come. You know my, my sitting up and my rising down. I can't flee from your spirit. Wherever I go, you're there. It's this beautiful psalm about how much God knows us. And there's a the verse, I think around verse 16, where he talks about how God has formed our inward parts. And I think the Hebrew there talks about the bones in the body. And I think I read this in high school when I found out you have like 206 bones in the body. I remember talking to one of my friends. I was like, dude, how incredible is our God? He knows all the bones in our body. They're like, well, he made us. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is deep, bro. There's billions of us in the world. So whatever billions of us in the world, times it by 206, God knows all those bones. And my friend, knowing who I am, was like, bro, you think that's deep? Now I want you to think about all the people who've ever lived. And I was like, whoa, that's amazing, right? And then we had another friend who was just like, bro, y'all think that's deep? Now I think about all the people who've yet to live. I'm like, oh my gosh. Our God is amazing, but there's always one in the group. There's always one in the group, and the, first, the third person was like, y'all think that's amazing. I want you to think about the hairs on your head. And we're all like, my goodness gracious. God perfectly knows us. We can't outrun God, right? And I think I love about Psalm 139 is David cracks me up. That Psalm is beautiful about how God perfectly knows us. God knows everything. And then towards the end, he's just like, but God, 
There's people who hate you and they're your enemies. I want to strike them down, right? Like, and remember, the Psalms are like praise and worship songs, right? Imagine coming to church, it's like, God knows me. God loves me. God's always there. I want to kill his enemies. Like, wait, what? How do we get here, David, right? But at the end of that Psalm, David says one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. He says this, right? Lord, search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of the everlasting. Because sisters and brothers, we can't outrun God, but Jonah proves to us that we can disobey God. You can't outrun God, but you can disobey God. And that's why it's important for us to not know that God knows us perfectly, that God's always there. It's important for us to know and hold on to the fact that we can choose to disobey God. Which is why our prayer must be like David. God, I thank you for knowing me perfectly. God, I thank you for always being there. God, I thank you that I can't outrun you. But God, if there's wicked ways in me, I need you to tempt, purge me and transform me and take me out of that way and lead me in the way of the everlasting. Because God wants to use you to bring salvation to this world. Next week, we'll celebrate Mission Sunday. We'll have the Spurriers coming from Matcha, and they served there for decades and be telling us about the work that God is doing there. We'll also have opportunities to hear from the missionaries that have gone out from this church. It's going to be a wonderful celebration because it's going to be a chance for all of us to take a step back and be like, how can we join in the work that God is doing in this world through this church? But here's a little secret I want to tell you. That the people we celebrate and highlight next week aren't God's only missionaries. The people that we celebrate and highlight next week aren't the only ones who are supposed to be doing God's work. Because if we believe our Jesus and we've already been sent, then that means all of us are God's missionaries too. So the work becomes, if God wants to do salvation and bring it to the salvation to this world, and he wants to do it through us, what are you doing to bring God's message to the world? Because the story of Jonah we'll see for four weeks here is a story of God's love and mercy. I think the hard part for us as Christians is we have to understand that God's love and mercy is available to us. We do a good job of that one, right? God loves me, that's great. But the push here is that God's love and mercy is not just available to you, but it has to be available through you. You're the instrument, you're the vessel, you're the ambassador, you're the one God has chosen to go to your world and show them who God is. Because you might have a best friend, and you can tell that best friend God loves them, and that's going to be way more than me saying God loves them, because I don't have the history, I don't have the relationship, I don't have the connection, I don't even have the end. If I walk to them and say God loves them, they might think I'm a little wacko, to be honest, right? Who is this random person telling me that? You're not the random person. Only you can go to your world. And if you've already been sent, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because the story of Jonah is centered on one of my favorite words, probably my, my favorite word in all the Bible, and this word, hesed. And we'll get to it in a couple weeks. But when Jonah says God's mercy, he's looking at it, and he actually gets mad at God for this. He's like, God, I don't like that you're compassionate, you're merciful. I don't like that you love your enemies. I don't like that you work together for good for everyone. I don't like that you put others first. I don't like that you're for the world. I only want you to be for me. So the work for all of us is when God tells us to go, are we willing to go? And if we've already been sent, what are we doing that we're sent? It's good to know we can't outrun God, but we must be reminded that we can disobey God, which is why we have to say, God, search me and know me. Take the wicked ways out of me and lead me in the way of the everlasting. Because God wants to use us to bring salvation to the world. And just like we say Jonah is a story of God's love and mercy, we need to realize that we are stories of God's love and mercy too. 
God has given that to you so he can work through you to go into your world. I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're going to end with singing a song called Reckless Love. And the thing I love about this song is it's very biblical to me, to be honest, because a lot of times in Scripture, we read stuff in English and we lose, right? We lose the, 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 the author's original meaning because there's just so much in there. In our English context, we hear reckless, right? We think of someone who's careless. We think of someone who doesn't think. We think of someone who's just haphazardly jumping into something. But I think we miss the point that the author is driving at. And when you sing this song in Spanish, I think when you put it in a different language, I think the Spanish writer actually gets the point of the song. Because in Spanish, they interpret reckless love as amor sin condición, right? Which is love without conditions. Love without limit. So this song isn't saying God recklessly loves me, right? Like God just doesn't think about anything. He just whatever, right? This song is saying God loves me without limit. God loves me without condition. God loves me perfect with his Hesed love. And so as we sing this reckless love, may we be reminded that God loves us without condition, but God also loves our world without condition. And God has chosen you to show that love to his world. Amen? Let's stand and sing together. Any pastors in the room, I want to ask you to please come up. We'd love to pray for you for anything going on. If you have stuff that you need prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. If there's something you want to respond to this service, we'd love to pray for that as well. Let's stand and sing together about God's perfect love for us.
won't light up Mountain you won't climb up Coming after me Snow wall you won't kick down Lie you won't tear down Coming after me No shadow you won't light up Mountain you won't climb up Coming after me things about this song for me is it reminds us, right, that, that we have a God who will leave the 99 to go after the one. And so if we heard anything in this service, we need to realize that that same God is calling you to leave the comfort and the safety to go after the one. Now, I was picking on David earlier, but one of David's most beautiful psalm, I would say his, his most perfect psalm is Psalm 23. And in Psalm 23, David is only telling and singing about what he knows, right? David is a shepherd and it hits him. It's like, oh my gosh, God is my shepherd too, right? David is a king. He's like, oh my goodness, God is my king. How amazing is that? But then he ends with this verse that I think the English again betrays us. We, we listen to it. We hear it. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we kind of think of God's love as like a shadow, right? Like it's just there, you know? Like it's just, he's God. He's got to be there. But you have to remember that before, or David is not just only a shepherd, David is not just a king, David is also a warrior. And what David is saying isn't that you'll follow me like a shadow, right? David is saying, oh my goodness, my God, my warrior, you will chase me down until I'm captured. And I love that because of God's mercy is, he's talking about the hesed, the idea that God's going to work for your good, the idea that God is on your side, the idea that God's for the world. He's going to chase you down until you're captured. So as we go out this week, may we be reminded that God not only will chase us down until we're captured, but God's going to do that with our world too. And God's going to do that with the people in our lives too. So are we willing to let God, love, and mercy not only come to us, but come through us. Because our world needs it, and God has chosen you with the Spirit's help to give it. Our Father God, we thank you so much for your reckless love, for your love without condition, for the love that chases us down until we're captured, for the love that works together for our good, for the love that never leaves us nor forsakes us, for the love that never fails, for the love that's always there. God, we pray to that same love that we know 
can be not only known by us, but known by our world. So God, help us to go out into the world. Father, we pray that you show us your ways. Lord Jesus, we pray that you teach us your paths. Holy Spirit, we pray that we learn how to submit to you. Lord, as you transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, help us to be obedient, not only to take up our cross and follow you, but help us to be obedient so that you work not only to us, but through us. So Lord, we thank you that we can't outrun you. We ask for forgiveness for our disobedience to you. We ask for help as we go into the world. Lord, help us to wake up from our stupor, our deep sleep. Help us to not only see the storms and see the darkness, but help us to be willing to stand on behalf of your people. Help us to be willing to be light in every darkness. God, we thank you for your deep, deep love for us. But we thank you and we're humbled that you have chosen us to show the world your love too. So Lord, just like you chased us down and captured us, we pray that we can submit to the Spirit, keep our eyes on the Son, and hold on to the embrace of the Father as we go into our world and show them what your love looks like too. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.